0: Awesome. Good morning, church. So I figured out why Pastor Greg sits in the front row. It's because I can hear the voices. I even turned around at one point, I heard harmonies. Some of you behind me there are singing harmony, and it sounds really, really good. So uh, congregation, you are a choir, you know? You are. It feels good to sit front and center and to hear all of the mix of vocals and harmonies on the stage beautiful blend this morning, but to hear what was happening behind me as well. Wow! It's just awesome. Uh, Church, we have begun a uh, year-long study. Um, We started last week, and uh, it's by an author named James Bryan Smith. And um, this is going to take us all the way until next summer. And so if you're here today, you are right on time. God bless you. I'm so glad you came today. God meant for you to be here uh, book number one, hopefully you've started it this week at home, it's called The Good and Beautiful God. Uh, number two is The Good and Beautiful Life, and uh, the last one is The Good and Beautiful Community. So we're talking about the Lord, we're talking about our individual lives and His goodness and beauty in our lives, and then ultimately we're going to land on what does it mean to be that kind of a community together. Um, now last Sunday, we had all of those books available for purchase. Um our administrator asked, how many should we order? And I said, you know what, maybe order uh, 100 of each. You know, so 300 books, sets of three. They're gone. They're all gone. You, saw, <laughs> you church, you are dialed in to this series. You are, you are on it. And so God bless you for your passion and your desire to connect with God through this series. And I want to let you know that if you haven't purchased uh, the Good and Beautiful God book series yet, um, we have ordered more and they should be available next Sunday. Uh, Where's Pastor Greg today? Pastor Greg is preaching in our Rochester location uh, down there close to Athabasca, but he opened our series last week with the first chapter of the first book, and uh, his message was called, What Are You Seeking?, Every message Pastor Greg shares is excellent. He is an outstanding communicator. But last week, it was good, it was timely, it was relevant, it was heartfelt, and it was shared with great love for you. Um, with great humility, Pastor Greg talked a lot about how Christians should be focusing during this COVID-19 thing that's happening. Again, his message, what are you seeking? What are you, what are you focusing on? And uh, he, talked, uh, he talked about pursuing God more radically and more intentionally than frantically searching for information on the internet. Um, He talked about the need for community and to support each other and to love each other and and how we need the presence of the Holy Spirit every day. It was such a rich message. And I'm not just saying that. He doesn't pay me to say that. Um, But every now and then, it's almost as though there's like a state of the union type address message that Pastor Greg gives. And I feel like last week was one of those messages where it was very pointed uh, to the church family, and so I say go online at tfhchurch.ca, click on the button that says watch, and you will find that message again. Uh, We're going to begin with a word of prayer. My message is based on the second chapter of the book, and so if you're already on to the second chapter, you might say, oh, this kind of sounds like I was reading this week. It should. Um, The message is called God is Good. Good. And so let's begin with a word of prayer, and then I'm excited to communicate it to you. God, I just thank you for each and every person in this room, and Lord, those of us who preach, we recognize that although we're speaking, Holy Spirit, you are speaking. And so, God, never mind the words that come out of my mouth this morning. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would go to work on hearts and minds and perspectives and attitudes, and God, you would bring clarity, and you would bring truth and encouragement. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus, and the whole church said, Amen! Hallelujah! All right. So I wanted to find a word for you that you're going to be hearing a lot as you read uh, The Good and Beautiful God and as you listen to us talk about it on Sundays. And uh, that word is narrative. We're going to talk about narrative. James Bryan Smith is talking a lot about narratives. He says that we are creatures who live by stories. And from early on, we are told stories by our parents which help us to interpret how life is or how life ought to be. And so we're naturally drawn to stories. And what I find beautiful about that is that is the primary way in which Jesus communicated. Jesus spoke in parables, all kinds of parables. He talked in story form. Here's a quote from early in the book that talks about narrative. It says, narrative is the central function of the human mind. That is so powerful. We turn everything into a story in order to make sense of life. Here's a long list for you. We dream in narrative, daydream in narrative, remember, anticipate, hope, despair, believe, doubt, plan, revise, criticize, construct, gossip, learn, hate, and love by narrative. In fact, we can't avoid it. We are storied creatures, and our stories help us to navigate our world, to understand right and wrong, and to provide meaning. And so in this series that we're studying, the goal is to exchange false narratives that we have been told that we've grown accustomed to. They're like concrete. They get hard and solidified in our psyche, and we're just, we believe them, but we want to we pound those things, and we want to take on the narratives of Jesus Christ. Uh, the caption on the front of the book, the first book, says this. It says, falling in love with the God that Jesus knows. I just think if we could just comprehend and catch a revelation of what that means, I want to fall in love, not with the God that I can surmise and dream up and piece together in my own thoughts, I want to fall in love with the God that Jesus knows. I want that for my wife, I want that for each one of my kids, and I want that for each and every person in this room. If you were to talk to someone who is highly skeptical and critical of Christian faith, anybody know anybody? Highly skeptical, critical of Christian faith? (laughs) Yeah, okay. If you were to talk to them and say, tell me about the God that you don't believe in. Tell me about the God that you don't believe in. Chances are they would describe a God that you don't believe in either. And they would likely, almost certainly describe a God that is altogether different than the one that Jesus knows. Most people, even Christians, they don't know how good God is. And I even say that as a, as a pastor, as somebody who's been a Christian for a long time. If I could just comprehend how good God is, I think I would have a clearer picture of Him. There are a lot of false narratives about God that are informing people. And so we need to adopt the narratives of Jesus so that we can tell those people, critical people, skeptical people, unsure, confused people in our community that God is loving and gracious and forgiving and good. He is amazing. He is awesome. We give him all the praise. And so today we're going to tackle a false narrative that is significant in our world. I'm going to tell you, it's going to get a little heavy. It's going to get a little heavy, so I hope I still see some smiles and (laughs) happy people. Um, But I would say that most non-Christians in our world have bought into this narrative. And you would be surprised to know that 37% of Christians also believe this narrative. There was some research done by a a fellow named Barna, and they asked this question based on this narrative, and 37% of Christians said, yes, I think that's true. We need to shine the light of truth all over this false narrative. And so let's look at what it is. Okay, Uh, false narrative says this. God is an angry judge. If you do well, you will be blessed, and if you sin, you will be punished. God is watching us closely, eager to punish us even for minor infractions. Some people say, like, if we were to say, why do bad things happen? A lot of people, even Christians, would Relate that bad things happen because God is continually pouring out judgment on the planet, and he's pouring out judgment on people. What we believe in this church is that ultimate judgment was poured out powerfully on Jesus Christ on the cross, and if we are in Christ, we are recipients of his grace and his love and his forgiveness. Can I get an amen? Amen. Amen. So as a pastor, I've had dozens, likely hundreds of conversations with people that have been influenced by this story. It's one that's seeped its way into our culture, and again, it's not only Christians, it's non-Christians as well. Um, let me know if you've ever heard this statement. Have you ever invited somebody to church before, and uh, their response to you is, I could never come to your church because I would burst into flames the moment that I come into your church. It's, it's just me, right? Nobody else has heard that before from your friends, when, right? We all have. And that's because it's a statement that is informed by a narrative that suggests that God is angry. God is a judge. I have done too many bad things for God to accept me. In fact, I'm just waiting for God to punish me. I don't know if I'm going to get in an accident or if he's going to trip me on the street and I'm going to break my leg, but God's going to judge me. And if I were to come to your church and feel good about myself, I would need to be a little more angelic and I would need to shape up a lot to come and worship with you people. But church, I want to confront that narrative and say that is not true. That is not the way that God wants people to feel. And we should never project that idea onto our community because it's a false narrative. In my preparation this week, I was uh, listening to a song it was originally li- uh, written in 1961, and it's had several versions since that time. Uh, the one that I was listening to was written in the year 2000, and it's by a band called Pearl Jam. And uh, it's actually a really catchy tune. Uh, I've been singing it all week. You can ask tell. I'm singing it in the kitchen, I'm singing it walking around the house. Um, that being said, it's also very dark and depressing because it's about a teenage guy who was uh, driving his car with his girlfriend, and he gets in a car accident, and his girlfriend dies. And so I'm going to sing the chorus of this song for you, and I want you to see if you recognize this song, okay? This is how it goes. Oh, where, oh, where can my baby be? The Lord took her away from me. She's gone to heaven so I've got to be good so I can see my baby when I leave this world. Some of you are singing. Some of you know it. Yeah, it's a, I don't know why you're clapping. It's such a sad song. It's so sad. You know what, I, have, I remember as a kid on the farm, I, rem, I even remember the vehicle I was in. I was in my dad's old gray Ford pickup truck. And I was listening to the radio, and that song came on, and I was like, this song is catchy. This song is very sad. (laughs) This is a sad song. (laughs) There's a false narrative in this song, and this is why I'm singing it for you today, okay? It says, where, oh, where can my baby be? The Lord took her away from me. She's gone to heaven, and so I've got to be good so that I can see my baby when I leave this world. And so there's this belief that God caused this terrible thing to happen, a car crash that takes a life, and the girlfriend, who's wonderful and beautiful, such a nice person, she's angelic, she must be in heaven, and so the boyfriend, he's got to do a lot better because the narrative says that, you know, it's based on our good works that God rewards us and that he brings us into eternity, so he better be good so he can see his baby one day in heaven. Now, many of you could reference songs. There's, how many sad songs have we heard on the radio? Many of you could reference stories of things that have happened, horrific things that have caused you to question the goodness of God. And I want to tell just a few of those stories. These are things in my life that I reflect on and think about, and I think, God, how could you be good if things like this happen? Uh, one of my uncles, when he was young, he's probably about 20, he married this lady Uh, Her name was Leanne. She was 19, and shortly after their wedding, Leanne got pregnant. And when she was just five months pregnant, she was driving her car not far from where I grew up, and she was going back home to the farm where she lived. She got in an accident, and her and her baby died. And so that shook the whole Visher family. Vishers are not people that cry, but man, that would have rattled our family to the core. I was thinking this week about a pastor in uh, ministry at the church that I grew up in, first 16 years of my life in Edmonton. And uh, this pastor, his name is Mark, he has four young kids, his wife got cancer. His children were still quite young at the time. And after a prolonged and painful journey, she passed away and left this man with four heartbroken little ones. Can you imagine? It's hard. I was thinking this week about uh, a friend from high school. Her name is Rachel. Same age as me, we graduated together, we were good friends. Um, She got married shortly after high school and became pregnant, and when the time came to deliver that baby, something went terribly wrong in that delivery process, and the baby died during delivery. And at our 10-year high school reunion just a few years ago, 2016, there was not a dry eye in the room as she wept and told the story of losing her first baby. Um, I was thinking about my mom. My mom works in healthcare, and uh, she recently told me a story of a man who is now in his early 40s. Every single person that's in a home or has a broken body or, or a handicap of some form, church, there's a story there. And what happened to this man was he was just a little guy, perfectly healthy. He was out playing, he was running, and his father accidentally ran him over with the tractor, And so now he's in a home for the rest of his life, damaged, broken, mentally, physically, in every way. You would have your own stories. I know you would. I know that if we had each and every person come up, you would say, I have a family member, I have a friend. I remember this accident that happened. I remember this person that had cancer or heart disease or something, and it wasn't fair, or or a little one, a baby, passed away. And when situations like this happen, we find ourselves desperate for answers, don't we? Oh, sometimes we are just grasping at straws to understand why do bad things happen. And with the knowledge that we have, we try to fill in the blanks to satisfy the emptiness and the hopelessness and the pain that we feel. But what I'm gonna talk about in this next section of my message is, church, there are some blanks that you and I can't fill. There are some blanks that you and I were never intended to try to fill. And so, you're going to see here in a moment, it's damaging when we even try to fill in those blanks and to explain why those things happen. See, people have come up with unhelpful and sometimes terribly inappropriate explanations for why bad things happen. To my uncle, who lost his 19-year-old wife and and his baby as well, people could have said, you know, I'm so sorry, but you can get remarried. You're still young. You can have another baby. Maybe to the girl who lost her little one during delivery, Oh, the Lord must have wanted another angel. It's okay, sweetie. It's all right, you know? Babies in eternity. We say things like this. Maybe to the parents of the man who was ran over by the tractor, well, you should be thankful. He didn't die. People say stuff like this. And sometimes in trying to explain, there's even a hint of judgment. I've heard people say when tragedies happen, well, if only they would have been more careful. It's an, you know, when somebody's hurting that bad, Something you shouldn't say. Lastly, sometimes people say things like, well, I'm sure the Lord had a reason. Oh, I'm sure the Lord had a reason. But the problem with those explanations, church, is that they demonstrate limited human understanding. Sometimes we're grasping to explain why things happen, but we're so limited. And we're often trying to fill in a picture that only God sees clearly and completely. I was thinking about a way to try to explain that to you this morning, and the image came to mind instantly in my mind of um, if somebody were to take a white piece of paper and they were to draw several lines on it and give it to you and say, fill it in, finish the picture. But you didn't know where they were going, but you still tried to fill it in and to finish it, and then you presented it to people and said, here is an accurate description of what happened. Here is what the originator meant. Do you think that would work? That would not be good. That would likely not give people a clear and accurate picture. But people do that all the time with the Lord, and unfortunately, when we lack understanding, and yet we try to explain cancer, and we try to explain accidents, and we try to explain miscarriages, and why babies are born stillborn sometimes, and things like that, we leave people with a small and a narrow understanding of who God is. And they walk away with this belief that God is mean, He's unfair, angry, and cruel, and sometimes they might even leave a church and they're feeling misunderstood, lost, confused because Christians, believers, have said things to them to try to explain God. As I go on in my message, you're going to hear me say, I've learned that there are times where even as a pastor, it's best that I don't try to explain God. It's okay to leave the blank empty, it's okay to leave the picture incomplete, and in an act of surrender and trust and humility and brokenness and repentance to say, Lord, you are God and I am human, and there's going to be things I don't understand. And so for all of us Christians, we are much closer to the answer, let me give you a hint, when we comprehend that the Lord is beyond human definition. He won't be bound by our explanations, and so what I've come to realize is that when you're encountering broken, confused, hurting people who have experienced challenges and difficulties and suffering, humility is an excellent baseline. Start with humility. And so before moving on to some scripture, I wanted to emphasize that people's explanations of God and why bad things happen They often say more about them and their expectations than they do about God. Let's remember that. And so I say that to say, let's be slow to speak and quick to listen. God's Spirit can do so much more when we determine ourselves to quietly care for those who are hurting in our community. And in continuing, let's be sure to give them a picture of God's goodness. If you just emulate and radiate joy and peace and confidence in a God, even when you don't understand him completely, that speaks to people, amen? Amen. All right, so we're gonna get into some Bible right now. Um, Many of the stories that we see in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, are confusing. Can I get an amen? Anybody say, yeah, stories in the Bible, many of them are confusing. We need to be reminded, however, that the Bible is not only a book about God, it's a book about people. And I think that is primarily one of the biggest things that hangs people up. It's not only a picture of God, it's a picture of extremely flawed, broken, sinful people. It reveals what happens when nations, communities, and families, and individuals are selfish and when they disobey the Lord. And so the Bible, I mean, talk about some of these Old Testament books. They're full of bloody battles and messy relationships and mistakes, and those things affect not only those who are at fault, but they also have an effect on those who are innocent as well. But interwoven through every story, let me encourage you, is a patient and forgiving God who gradually moves people along toward His purpose. And if you would just have a heart to commit to his goodness, to look for it, to search it out, it it appears hidden sometimes, you will see that his loving heart is in every one of the stories of Scripture. Come on. God is always working to set his people apart from the world, uh, to save them from pagan influences and idols, and he allows them to experience challenges and consequences for their actions. But I promise you, God's heart is never unloving. God is never evil. If you believe there's an ounce of sin or evil in God, it's a false narrative. The Lord is never evil. He is only ever good. Even when we see anger and wrath in the Bible, we can know that it's coming from a heart that is to love and to protect His people. The Lord is a jealous God. Amen? We're going to talk about that more in the, next, in the next few chapters of our book. But the author of our book says this, nearly every ancient religion was built on the understanding that people were blessed when they did good and cursed when they did bad. And so even hundreds and thousands of years later, why do we have this narrative in our culture today that suggests that I have to be good to be blessed and I can't be bad or I'll be cursed? It's because it's been this way for many, 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 many years. So there are several scriptures in Jesus' ministry that contradict this false narrative. In the first one, a crowd comes to Jesus and they refer to two tragedies that had happened. And the Jews inherently believed that these tragedies indicated God's judgment. So this is Luke chapter 13, verses 1 to 5. It says Jesus was informed that Pilate had murdered some people from Galilee as they were offering sacrifices at the temple. Do you think that those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other people from Galilee, Jesus asked? Is that why they suffered? In verse 3, Jesus answers the question and he says, Not at all. And you will perish too unless you repent of your sins and turn to God. Verse 4, this is the second story. And what about the 18 people who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? Were they worse sinners in Jerusalem? No, said Jesus. I tell you again that unless you repent, you too will perish. And so let's recap these stories. Uh, So there's this Roman official, his name was Pilate. And I don't know what these Galileans, these Jewish people did, but... Pilate murdered some people, and so immediately the belief was, oh, they must have sinned. They must have done something to deserve it. And then a large tower had fallen on a group of people, and 18 of them died, and the Jews believed that they must have been terrible sinners for God to take them out like that. But in both cases, Jesus says, it's not true. Did you catch that in the scripture? He said, no. And so Jesus uses both tragedies not to explain how God punishes people, but to emphasize that everyone is equal, and everyone needs to repent and turn from sin and turn to God, or else they do risk ultimate perishing um, in eternity. And so people being murdered is horrific. Uh, A tower falling on 18 people and killing them is tragic, But God did not cause those things to happen. That's what Jesus affirms. God did not mean for those things to happen. In another story, Jesus encounters a man who is uh, born blind. And oh, there's so much I could say about this, but again, the culture among the Pharisees and the religious leaders is anybody with an infirmity was believed to be judged and cursed by God. And so they believed that this man was. John chapter nine, verses two to three, his disciples ask him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Listen to Jesus' response. He says, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. What a powerful statement. It's so good, it's so positive. If Jesus believed that this man's blindness was punishment for his sins, he could have walked away. And he likely would have. But instead, Jesus regarded his blindness as a challenge to manifest God's power in the man's life. See, that should be our perspective, church. When you're coming up against people who are sick or oppressed or who have experienced hard things, you as a representative of Jesus, as a Christian, as a Christian, you know, you go in with the light and with the gospel, it's a good gospel, and you encourage them and you pray for them and you bless them. It's as though Jesus was saying, let's not focus on why this guy was born blind, but let's partner with the living God in seeing him healed. And so I'll emphasize what I said earlier. There is so much in life that's beyond human understanding to know why people are born with life-threatening diseases and why people die young, why accidents happen. But with every fiber of our being, church, we need to reject a narrative that says, God is punishing them. God is judging them. God must have wanted to hurt them because of the choices that they made. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 45, Jesus is talking about his father and he says this, he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That is such an amazing verse. Jesus is telling us a truth, and that's that just as sunshine and rain are given equally to saints and to sinners with no distinction, so God gives blessings to everyone without regard to their behavior. We see that. Terrible things happen to wonderful people. Wonderful things happen to awful people. We cannot look around the world and build a case that sinners are punished and righteous are blessed because reality doesn't seem to bear that out in our world. Uh, There's a quote by uh, the fourth century theologian and philosopher, and this is a direct quote from the book. Um, This is a a guy named St. Augustine. It says this, We do not know why God's judgment makes a good man poor and a wicked man rich, nor why the wicked man enjoys the best of health whilst the man of religion wastes away in illness. Even then, it is not consistent. Good men also have good fortune, and evil men find evil fortune. So though we do not know by what judgment these things are carried out or permitted by God in whom is the highest virtue and highest wisdom and highest justice, and in whom there is no weakness nor rashness nor unfairness, it is nonetheless beneficial for us to learn not to regard as important the good or evil fortunes which we see shared by good and evil persons alike." That is such a powerful statement, it's incredible. You can tell that in the fourth century they were wrestling with some of the dilemmas that we have today in the church. Um, There's a theme that Pastor Greg has been talking about a little bit recently in his messages and this comes out in the book as well. And that's the reality that you and I are not in control. Has anybody realized that? I am not in control, you're not in control? doctors, and scientists, and economists, and politicians are not in control? We certainly try, don't we? And so the reason why we form conclusions quickly about why good and bad things happen, it's because we like to be in control. That's why we fill in the narrative, that's why we fill in the picture. And so life is chaotic, and it's crazy, and so being able to explain things gives us this illusion that we can control and manipulate our world but that is false. That is very false. And uh, let me tell you what God is teaching me. God is teaching me the exact opposite of control, that there is greater peace and greater joy and greater freedom in life when you do the exact opposite of control. That, That is when you surrender. An answer is found in knowing that God is in control. And that's not a cop-out. I would never want that to sound insensitive to anybody that's going through something difficult. But knowing that God is in control, sometimes it's like a, it's like a child that doesn't understand. It's like a child that is crying, that is weeping, and that, that runs to their father and, and hugs him and says, Dad, I don't, I just, I don't understand. I, I don't have the answer. Would you reassure me? Would you hold me? See, that is you and I. And we're the father's house. We can run to our Heavenly Father knowing that God is in control. And saying that God is in control is not avoiding responsibility, but it's actually a posture of humility. It's a beautiful expression to say that God is in control. We can take all the confusing and difficult and painful things in life and we can lay them at the cross. Amen? Amen. Come on. And so as we move into the last part of my message, I'm going to tell you what we can do. So far, this message hasn't been that helpful because I've told you everything that you shouldn't do, (laughs) everything that's not helpful for you to do. Let's talk about four things that you can do. And I put these on the slide so you can write them down if you like. Number one, what can we do? We should focus our attention on the good things that are peculiar to the good, and this, this is, comes out in the book. The author calls this the good, only the good know. The good, only the good know. What does it mean? It means that in spite of all the bad things that are outside of our control, there are natural blessings that are given to those who do good. Now, the opposite is true as well. There are natural consequences that only those who do bad know. Things like guilt, remorse, loneliness, and other things, that's not from God. God is not saying, I'm going to crush you with loneliness and guilt and remorse and all these things because God's mean and God's a bully. That's a false narrative. But some of these things come about when people don't make good choices. But when we choose to do good, as God would have us do good, we will know a kind of joy and peace that those who do evil will never know. There is such a thing as the good, only the good know. And there's a reason why the Bible encourages us to be honest and faithful and to serve, and Pastor Tyler talked about it, to be generous, because when we live that way, we access goodness. We access a principle that God has instilled into this world, the good, only the good know. All of us should long to live that way and to experience that goodness. Number two, uh, we should expect to go through heartache and pain, suffering and loss, because they are part of what it means to be human and they can be useful in our development. That's not to say we should expect it as though we're saying, come on, bring it on, bring on the hardship, bring on the suffering, nobody wants to live like that. But we understand when we experience challenges and suffering that these things are part of what it means to be human. We see so many people getting angry with God when they experience difficult things, but I want to clarify for you again, suffering doesn't come from a bad God who wants to cause pain. Suffering does not come from a bad God who wants to cause pain. Suffering and challenges, we don't know why we experience some of those things. But what we do know is that God can use suffering for his good purpose to help us grow and develop. That we do know. In the book of James, it talks about facing trials with joy, knowing that the testing of our faith produces endurance. And uh, I'm sure that you know some of these people as well, but some of the most well-developed and mature and loving and fortified and strong people in life are people that have experienced some of the most terrible things. And somehow, they come through them and God used it to shape their character and to mold them. Number three, we should invite Jesus to live in and through and for us every day. No matter what you experience, church, the hard things you go through, you have the gift of Christ. You have the gift of His presence. Going back to some of the stories that I told you at the beginning, uh, uh, my uncle, who lost his wife and baby, he did remarry. He remarried, and he has four children. They're all young adults now. They love the Lord. They go to church together. They're a beautiful family. And so it's kind of like the story of Job. Anybody know the story of Job? He went through some terrible things. He was crushed. He was hurt. But God blessed him. My uncle loves Jesus. Uh, Number two, the pastor who lost his wife to cancer. This pastor is still in ministry. How easy would it have been for him to shake his fist at God? But instead, he took God's hand and said, I want to experience your comfort. I want to experience your joy and your peace, and I want to continue to minister the gospel to people. And so he's been sustained by the presence of Jesus. Uh, My friend, I didn't tell you the entire story of my friend in high school who lost her baby in delivery, but she has a testimony of experiencing the presence of Jesus in a miraculous way. Part of the reason we were all crying as she was telling this story was because um, she talked about an image she had. She was laying in the bed, and she had just received the news that her baby didn't make it. And she said it was like the lion from Narnia, or, or the lion of Judah, came into that room and roared. And all the darkness, all the pain, all the depression just was like, it just didn't even stand a chance. She said she was flooded with confidence. She was flooded with joy and comfort in that moment, even in the midst of the pain that she was going through. And as she shared that testimony, I tell you, we all got a rush of the presence of God as well. My mom, who is taking care of this man that was ran over as a little boy, this, this man is not a Christian. He doesn't know Jesus. But my mom is a Christian. And as she serves him. She is an extension of Christ to this man. And as she changes him and bathes him and feeds him, she says that she's continually praying for him. She considers what she does for him a ministry of Jesus to this man. There's one more story that I wanted to tell you about. Um, I was reading a story about a mother who had a little baby, and the doctor said, there are some terrible things wrong with this child. The baby had a condition that would cause uncontrollable seizures, terrible, terrible seizures. And so they said, this baby is likely not going to live very long. But the baby lived one years old, two years old, three years old, four, and this child would have the most terrible seizures and convulsions and whatnot. And in this story, I just felt the presence of Jesus because she talked about how she would hold him. And she would cry, and she said her tears would just soak this little boy's hair, and she would hold him as he's convulsing and having seizures. And she says that it's like the presence of Jesus would come into the room where this little boy is laying on the bed, and she is laying on the bed with him, holding him while he has these seizures. And she says, it's as though Jesus would wrap his arms around both of them and hold them. And she said, I've never felt the presence of God more steadily and more powerfully than holding my son while having a seizure and that child did die but his mother said that she knew she would see him in eternity one day and she praises God for his life she thanks the Lord for the three or four years that she had him because she knows that she will see him again in eternity and so that leads to the last point what can you do We should hold fast to the hope of heaven, a place where wrongs are made right and where one day we will fully understand. Try to make sense of everything in this world. (laughs) It's not going to go well for you. Don't do it. Please don't do it. But one day, Jesus will wipe away every tear. I don't understand why bad things happen to good people. I don't understand why bad things happen, accidents, cancer, heart disease, miscarriages. I do know that there's blessings for those who do good. I do know that there's natural consequences for those who do bad. But there is so much that I don't know. James Bryan Smith closes the chapter by saying, when we come to judgment day, not only will the judgments passed there seem to be most just, but all the judgments of God from beginning will likewise clearly be, will be likewise clearly fair. Then too, it will also become clear how just the judgment of God is in causing so many, in fact, all of his judgments to evade men's grasp of understanding. Those who have faith will not fail to realize that such hidden judgments are just." And so I just pray that the sense that you have in your heart today as you go home, maybe thinking about some of the difficult things you've experienced or other people experience, I just pray that it's like an anchor for your soul. Hope. God is good. He is awesome. One day we will understand. And for now, we surrender. We trust in Him. We praise Him. We thank Him for His goodness. I'm going to invite Pastor Tyler and the band to come. We're going to close with communion First Sunday of the month is always communion at the Father's house and I hope you received communion when you came in this morning. Oh, thank you, Lord. So church, the goal of our series is to fall in love with the God that Jesus knows and he is good, loving, compassionate. He is greater than us. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. If you're saying today, I just feel the need to release my own understanding to God. I have some hurts that I need to let go of. I want to surrender myself fully and completely to this good and beautiful God. I want to trust Him more. If you're resonating with this message that I've said today, can you just raise your hand and say, yeah, me. (laughs) Come on. Hands going up all over the room. Let me pray for you. God, in Jesus' mighty name, I just thank you for assurance and reassurance. And Lord, experiencing that doesn't necessarily mean that we have answers to all of life's questions. But Lord, we just thank you right now that your presence is sufficient. We thank you that Your gospel is enough. And Lord, for all the things that we don't understand, for all the hurts and for all the pains and for the suffering and the challenges, right now, we just cast our cares to you. We just lay those things at the feet of Jesus and we say, Lord, you are enough. And we say, Lord, we trust you. Lord, we love you. Lord, help us not to shake our fist at you, but God, help us to take your hand. God, where people are feeling empty, I pray that you would fill them up. Where people are feeling unsure, I pray that you would steady them and secure them, God. And I pray that where there is sadness, that you would replace it with joy today in Jesus' mighty name. All right, we're going to take communion. Church, communion is a powerful symbol of our union with Jesus. He is our common union. We believe that Jesus was a real person. He was and is the Son of God. We believe that He showed people a better way to live. We believe that He died a criminal's death on the cross and it was for the forgiveness of our sins. His body was broken. His blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins and He offers that forgiveness to anybody that would say, Yes, I need that. I need that forgiveness. And so before we take communion, is there anybody in the room today that says, I have never once done that. I have never said, Jesus, would you be my Lord and my Savior, and would you come and live in me? If you haven't done that, it's not about being good. That's The Bible says that our goodness is like filthy rags. We need the goodness of Christ. We need the goodness of Jesus in order to be in right standing with God. Is there anybody that would say, yeah, I'd like to accept. Not going to embarrass you i'm not going to put you on the spot it's pretty bright <laughs> all right okay well let's take the bread hallelujah on the night that jesus was betrayed he took bread and he broke it he distributed it to his disciples and he said take this in remembrance of me so let's take the bread right now jesus we thank you for your broken body on the cross for us we thank you that in that brokenness we find wholeness God in that in our own insufficiencies we can find completion and healing because of what you did for us jesus on the cross thank you lord take the cup on the night jesus was betrayed he took the cup and he said this is my blood spilled for the forgiveness of our sins and he said do this in remembrance of me so we remember jesus and let's take the cup together. thank you lord for forgiveness we just repent of our own ways of our own will repent of our sins this morning, and we say thank you for forgiveness. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. We're going to sing this song. We sang it earlier, but can you sing it with a little more passion? Let's just declare the goodness of God. He is awesome. Even when we don't understand, we just thank him. We see the evidence of his goodness all over our lives, and so let's sing it together.
1: All throughout my history 在 fear may come, but fear will lead, and you lead my heart. promises I see your promises in fulfillment
0: midst of whatever challenges you're facing, just whisper a prayer to Christ in the midst of those things and say, Lord, would you mold me, would you shape me (sighs) into your intention through this situation that I'm dealing with? And even as I pray that, I think about the ones that my wife and I have dealt with even this week. It's a hard prayer to pray. But I promise you, God is not punishing you. God is not trying to hurt you. God loves you more than you can imagine he is so for you he is so for you becoming more and more like his son Jesus and so I just bless you with hope and courage in the midst of all the things that you're facing in your family in your work environment in the midst of this world and the the COVID craziness that's going on (laughs) Lord shape us to be more and more like your son Jesus And in the midst of it, give us joy that is our strength. Amen? Amen. Let's give the Lord a hand clap. (laughs) And you have a wonderful week. Make sure to grab a cup of coffee on the way out today and to encourage somebody. Go and encourage somebody. Amen.